I'm Rachel Cassandra. Welcome to Midday Magazine for Thursday, January 12th. Petersburg's volunteer fire department and police force responded to a house fire yesterday at a home about five miles south of downtown. No people were hurt in the fire, but one guinea pig died. And there was severe property damage to the home. KFSK's Shelby Herbert has more. The fire was at a log cabin-style home at 471 Mitkoff Highway. The fire department received the alert around 11 in the morning and rushed to the scene. Dave Berg is a spokesperson for Petersburg's Volunteer Fire Department. When he arrived, the second floor was rapidly catching fire. I saw smoke, heavy smoke coming out of the eaves and uh, the windows... And within a couple of minutes, uh, we saw smoke uh, and fire coming out of the eaves, the windows on the second floor of the, of the building, uh, which is where the owner indicated that the fire started. The burning home was about a quarter of a mile off the highway. It was on top of a steep hill, which was slippery with ice. Berg says that made it hard for his team to access the property. You know, it's a, always a challenge, This being this far off the road. We're probably three or 400 yards literally off the road right now. So to get a water supply, we were able to get our truck up here, which has water on board, but we needed more water. So we put out probably, you know, 1,500 feet of large diameter hose to get to the property. It took the crew about an hour and a half to fight the worst of the flames. About 20 people helped put out the fire. Fire Chief Jim Stolpe directed the response from the bottom of the hill. Best I can tell you right now is we have two trucks up there, probably 10 guys working on it. And as far as I can see by the white smoke, uh, which is a real good sign that most of the fire is out. Officials don't know how the fire started. But the homeowners told Stolpe they had encountered a problem with the chimney system. By about 1 p.m., firefighters had extinguished the flames and were checking the home for lingering embers. In Petersburg, with help from Rachel Cassandra, I'm Shelby Herbert. An account has been set up at First Bank for donations to help those homeowners. Trollers turned out at the Sitka Assembly meeting last night to voice concerns about a court case that could shut down commercial salmon trolling in southeast Alaska. The lawsuit is about Washington killer whales and Alaskan king salmon. Fishermen and representatives from the Alaska Trollers Association asked the local assembly to consider contributing $25,000 to their legal defense fund. KCAW's Catherine Rose reports from Sitka. The Seattle-based environmental group Wild Fish Conservancy wants to stop the southeast troll fisheries, which they say harm an endangered population of orcas. The group has argued the government failed to adequately address the impact of Alaska's king salmon harvests on southern resident killer whales, whose population in the Puget Sound area of Washington has dropped to critically low levels. And in December, a federal judge in Washington issued a report that puts the fisheries at risk of closure. The Alaska Trollers Association is a defendant in the 2020 suit against the National Marine Fisheries Service. Sitka fisherman Matt Donahoe is the president of the Trollers Group. He says they object to the report and expect their legal expenses to increase. Anyone claiming that southern resident killer whales are starving because Alaska Trollers were taking food from the mouth of their babies would be laughed out of court. That's what we thought. Yet a judge 
is recommending that the historic Southeast Alaska troll fishery, which for 100 years has never closed, will shut down this winter. If that happens, the industry will die, and so will a large part of Southeast Alaska's economy. Around a dozen fishermen asked the assembly to help with the organization's legal defense fund. And it's not just trollers. Linda Benkin leads the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association. Both her group and the trollers drafted a report outlining research into the decline of southern resident orcas. She said the lawsuit ignores a large body of science, which indicates that pollution, not fisheries, are the biggest threat. They're struggling with habitat issues. They're struggling with what's been done in the world around them. They're in Puget Sound. It's not even fisheries, let alone the fisheries a thousand miles away up here. And that our fishermen have worked for years to keep the resources up here healthy, to keep our rivers clean, and to take care of the whole ecosystem, and to now have this overreach by an area that's not done their job to take care of that habitat, I think really illustrates Who else will be at risk if this lawsuit perseveres? When it came time for the assembly to consider the proposal, there was support. And some said they'd be interested in giving more than $25,000. Assemblymember Chris Yested, who's a fisherman himself, said he saw it as an investment. I think the Sikatrol fleet produces more than $25,000 in uh, tax revenue every year to the city. So I don't think it's too much for them to ask for some of it back to fight their battles. Assemblymember Crystal Duncan suggested calling for other Southeast communities to throw in money. I'm just wondering if this is a Southeast-wide problem rather than us take and and elevate that number beyond 25,000. I guess the question is, have we reached out to say, here's what has happened since, here's how much we're requesting of Sitka, can you match that? But Duncan also wondered whether the assembly would be setting a precedent that would lead other industry groups to request money to help with legal fees. Sponsor Tor Christensen didn't take issue with that. I am hard-pressed to think of a a, uh, event that has threatened to wipe out a huge portion of our economy in one fell swoop, which is, in my mind, that is a definition of an emergency. So if somebody came forward with a similar issue, yes, we would discuss it. Uh, to me, this is like the landslide or some of, you know, during COVID and things, because this is a real threat to our town. And then there was a question of where the money should come from. City Administrator John Leach and Municipal Attorney Brian Hansen said the Fisheries Enhancement Fund could likely be used. But Mayor Stephen Eisenbeis preferred the money come from the city's general fund. As for whether the assembly could offer more than $25,000, Eisenbeis noted that while no one at the meeting spoke against the measure, the assembly had received some pushback in their inbox. Um, I I didn't expect that, um, but it, it's it's for better or for worse what we saw. So I think we should start here, and then uh, as things develop, um, keep an eye and a pulse on that. Um, from the the people in this room and the strength of the people in this room, uh, I have no doubt that we will be continued to be informed on that. The Sitka Assembly didn't take a vote at the meeting. Assembly members Christensen and Kevin Mosier, who co-sponsored the discussion item, said they'd bring an ordinance to the table for the Assembly to vote on at the next regular meeting, January 24th. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Division of Public Assistance Director Shonda O'Brien is no longer in her post. A voicemail message on O'Brien's 
state cell phone on Monday directed callers to the deputy director. You've reached the voicemail for the director of the Division of Public Assistance. This position is vacant. State officials declined an interview, but said O'Brien, quote, left state service on Monday. The news comes as the division has been under fire for its failure to issue food stamps and Medicaid benefits in a timely manner. In December, KTOO reported that thousands of Alaskans had been waiting months for their benefits. State Health Commissioner Heidi Hedberg blamed the backlog on last year's cyber attack and a recent surge of paperwork. But sources in the division told KTOO there were long-standing problems in the department, including chronic understaffing. In an email to Department of Health staff, Hedberg thanked O'Brien for her decades of work in the state. Juneau resident Deb Etheridge will replace O'Brien. She was previously assistant director of Southeast Alaska Independent Living and has worked for the state's Department of Health before. She is scheduled to start January 17th. The State Department of Transportation is changing the leadership running the Alaska Marine Highway System. As Angela Denning with Coast Alaska reports, the manager of the ferry system is leaving after almost 20 years, and there's a new deputy commissioner. The Alaska Marine Highway Operating Board addressed the staffing changes at a January 6th meeting. Shirley Marquardt is board president. The system is in a really vulnerable place right now. So, you know, in terms of talking about planning for succession and transition, how does that work? Here's DOT Commissioner Ryan Anderson at the meeting. I really recognize there's a lot of change going on right now, and and that's a a serious thing. The Marine Highway System's general manager of nearly 20 years, Captain John Falvey, announced his retirement. His last day will be January 17th. Commissioner Anderson said they will be aggressively looking for Falvey's replacement over the next month through a national search. They didn't have an advertisement ready at the time of the board meeting. Something we have to you know, put the energy into and make sure we're we're all working together, that we have good lines of communication and, and we're all just solid on, we have a, a, a purpose here and that's, you know, keeping the system moving, keeping Alaska moving. The state named Captain Tony Carvalis interim manager. He's currently the ferry system's operations manager. Retiring Captain Falvey served through five administrations. He was appointed as AMHS general manager in 2004 by Governor Frank Murkowski. Before that, Falvey worked for 27 years in commercial shipbuilding and in ocean-class vessel and fast ferry operations, including crew management. He graduated from the Maine Maritime Academy in 1976. No one from the state would comment on Falvey's tenure when asked several times by Coast Alaska, but Anderson spoke about him briefly at the board meeting. I want to thank Captain Feld for his service. Uh, he's a vast, you know, knowledgeable man that I respect. Board Vice President Juanetta Ayers said Falvey will be remembered. He really has done a yeoman's job for Alaska and for Alaskans and for the Alaska Marine Highway. Again, Board President Mark Hort. He worked through quite a bit of financial and political chaos, which is normal. Everybody, everyone has to do it, but he did that for 20 years. Your time at AMHS is greatly appreciated by thousands and thousands of Alaskans. Falvey did not return emails and calls requesting comment. But at the ferry board meeting, he thanked all of the marine highway workers. It takes a team to keep this operation moving. It is very, very complex. And um, 
it's something that uh, the person riding in this office just, they can't do that by themselves. And that is the ship's crews, the folks here in KCO, the folks out in the terminals. It, it, it takes a real team pulling together to make it all go. The Department of Transportation, which oversees the Marine Highway, also has a new deputy commissioner. Rob Carpenter resigned at the end of the year and was replaced by Catherine Keith on January 5th. She previously served as the liaison for the ferry board. Keith told the board she's optimistic about the future. I think we're at a time where uh, we we just want to look forward and that the situation that we're in is dynamic and things are happening in real time pretty quickly. Robert Venables, director of the Regional Civic and Business Organization Southeast Conference, has worked with Falvey for 18 years. He said he will be a very tough act to follow. Board member Ayers says she hopes Falvey would share suggestions on managing the marine highway system and the specific skills needed for his replacement before he leaves for good January 17th. In Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. A professional skier came to speak with Juno Kids last week. Her visit was part of an effort to remove some of the barriers that face Alaska Native youth who want to ski. Yvonne Crumry has more from Juno. Ellen Bradley is a professional skier, but a trip to Eagle Crest last winter was the first time she'd ever skied in Klingit Ani, her traditional homelands. Now she's working to help Alaska Native youth get everything out of skiing that she does. I think spending time on the land uh, can address so many things in a person's life, but I think mental health is especially one of them, to just move your body with the land in this winter time, you know. At the event, they're giving away prizes like a form-lined snowboard designed by Slingit artist James Johnson. There's live music by Southeast Alaska favorite Yatsin. Bradley learned to ski from her dad as a young child in Washington State. She says it helped her feel connected to the land, but she didn't see many other indigenous people on the slopes while she was growing up. Like, I had my brother and I had my dad, and everyone else I skied with was white. She says the sport can seem off-limits, even to people who are indigenous to the land a mountain sits on. Benson Bullock is helping kids sign up for ski trips with the Douglas Indian Association. So last year, we got together, and my supervisor said I should figure out a way to take kids up to Eagle Crest in March and April and get them lessons, get them gear, just get kids out on the mountain. This year, he wants the program to get even more kids on the mountain. Bradley thinks that efforts to get kids in skis could mean more indigenous people in the skiing industry as a whole. So they can become the professional skiers, so they can become the ski instructors, the lifties, so they can eventually become the people running Eagle Crest. Rylan Tompkins, one of dozens of kids at the event, could be one of the future pros Bradley is thinking of. He hasn't skied or boarded yet, but his uncle Joe Tompkins is a Paralympic ski champion. Ryland says he wants to learn too. Bradley is hopeful that more and more indigenous kids will start participating in snow sports. I think the future of skiing in Alaska is indigenous. For Eagle Crest, that future is hitting the slopes in just a few weeks. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Crumry. And for KFSK, I'm Rachel Cassandra.